Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Now I don't want to ruin your all's fun, because I know morality isn't sexy. Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, this is the last opening segment we're recording here in Montana. What are you going to miss the most? You, really. I mean, just your company, your face, (laughs) (laughs) hikes. Uh, I don't know. But uh, it's really nice to, we were just talking today about how even in the other times that we've hung out, it's rarely been like just the two of us hanging out for yeah. better, for better or for worse. That's, that's right. No, we've had a lot of time together and it's been great. Beautiful here. So thank you to the Seavers for hosting us. Great. So today we're going to talk about a movie that we actually both watched here in Montana together. We rewatched it. We've both seen it called Caché by the Austrian director Michael Haneke. And it's a great movie. I think we recorded this yesterday. We had a good discussion on it. Yeah. Uh, As we there's say. a lot of bourbon that that <laughs> we that is in our guest house that uh, got drunk predominantly by me. I think, but yeah. we'll see. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it it was it was fun to watch the movie next to you as well. Yeah, right in a, in bed yeah. in a dark room <laughs> in bed next to each other. Like the, I, I mean, I we've probably said this a few times, but it's it's it is funny how Dave and I how rarely we've actually been in the same place yeah. at the same time, given how well we know each other now, yeah, and how often we interact. Uh, yeah, super weird. I mean, it still has to be single digits, um, but you know, once we get over the initial awkwardness, uh, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> I I didn't even know there was initial <laughs> awkwardness, but apparently um, for the opening segment, I don't know. This was something I had. I think I had taken an edible and I just had like I was walking my dog at like 10 at night or something. And I just had this flash of a thought that we should do a, like a series. And it, I thought it could be Patreon bonus episodes or also uh, opening segments of just a conceptual analysis. The thing that I love. Um, yeah. Real, uh, real philosophy. Yeah, real philosophy, analytic philosophy of the kind that is so necessary. Pinning down a concept um, that, uh, you know, that you hear a lot, but you don't fully know what it means. Right. And the one that you, or I don't remember who suggested it. Yeah, I suggested this one that we're doing today. Corny or corniness yeah. um, is our concept for today that we are going to break down and come up with a theory, come up with necessary and sufficient conditions that are immune from all possible counterexamples. Yeah, yeah, that's right. 
<laughs> definitively, we will definitively solve the problem of what corny is. Um, no, but corny is one of those words that has always held fascination for me because being accused of telling a corny joke when I was like in middle school or like, like saying something corny was like, it was, it was such the opposite of cool that it was really just like, oh, like it just hurt if someone told you your joke was corny. And, uh, I feel like I've always sort of been sensitive to corniness. And in fact, I think when I was in college, I, I coined a new emotion. I discovered a new emotion mm. uh, called the corny chills. And that is when someone's being so corny that like, it's just like, oh, oh my God. Like, <laughs> yeah, But we're thinking of corny as separate from cringe, yes. right? Yeah. Um, which will be interesting to try to figure out exactly what's the difference. Unlike you, I don't have a history with corniness. Like I, I would, uh, I would attribute it to certain jokes are kind of corny. They're just kind of lame. Um, is sort of how I thought of it. But I've been noticing recently the word being used in increasingly interesting ways, not just for like a stupid dad joke or right. something like that, but in ways that are kind of politically charged in ways that are. So for example, um, there was an article that I looked at but uh, because of a t very funny tweet. Um, but the article was how Lin-Manuel Miranda went from cool to corny in four years or something like that. And the tweet was, uh, it's so sad that Lin-Manuel Miranda uh, has become corny, <laughs> comma, recently. <laughs> I but, mean, hey, it's something that you, that I've been saying for a long time and you were all on like Hamilton being like the coolest thing, you know? I, I was definitely not on that. I, <laughs> you I, loved it. You're I, like, oh, I, God, yeah, I, I thought it was fine and my daughter loved it. But that's a very like, and, and we can talk about why that fits Lin-Manuel Miranda and maybe Hamilton as a musical in particular, but like it's an, a different use of corny than to just say, oh, that's a corny <laughs> joke yeah, or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Cor corny has, I mean, there are sort of, you know, distinctions perhaps to be made between, as you mentioned, cringy and corny. There's also a related cheesy mm -hmm. um, that is, is, is kind of close to what people mean by corny. But the other way in which I know corny um, is as an insult to rappers. So from very early on, like in the 80s, you know, one of the worst things you could say about another rapper was that they were corny. And it's it's definitely not the same. So some people think of corny as uh, in the che cheesy kind of way, which is overly sentimental. Um, but corny as a rapper is is being predictable like you're sort of bad in a way that like you're just doing stuff that other people do or you're doing stuff that's old that was you know especially like back in the when when i started listening to rap there was like this new quote-unquote new school which was like in the in the like 87 89 they wanted to distinguish themselves from those like rappers who would rap in the early 80s with the abab kind of style like da -da 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 -da. like that yeah. became corny if you sounded like that you were corny and um, I'm good, yeah. and I'm here to say, <laughs> yeah, that's just terribly, <laughs> terribly corny. Um, and so, so doing something that's sort of trite or overused, especially without, you know, there's a heightened sense of irony in today's young generations. Yes, this cor being corny, you you can't be doing it on purpose. I think corny means you're being sincere. And you're being just sincerely corny. You're just bad. Right? Yeah. You're just like, oh, yeah. yeah. I think corny, It's this isn't an exceptionless 
principle, but it's definitely something younger people refer to, uh, like call older people. And it's rare that you would do it the other way around. You're right. Uh, <laughs> You're that older people cool. would call like a younger thing, uh, a younger person corny. Like it's, it is something that it seems like the, the younger generations are always going to be like aiming at. And, and, you know, I think like, Corny often is like say like something that's a sacred cow, like Hamilton or like some some movie that everybody loves. If you call it corny, it's a way of knocking it off its pedestal. Yeah. You know, it's there is a so I find musicals to be corny um, often. And when I say that, I think that I'm referring to the part that is um, the overly sentimental and mawkish sort of like emotional nature right. of many musicals where they're singing about their love for each other or they start spontaneously singing about whatever conflict is going on. So let me give an example that you used back when we did the Atlanta yeah. um, episode and you called the the white husband of that woman <laughs> who was ho- hosting the, the Juneteenth. Yeah. The Juneteenth party for all these like rich people. But he was a very like, he embraced black and African culture. And now I think some people might, have thought that that guy when we we talked about this episode it was the one we had lauren anderson on you can go back and listen to it if you haven't heard it yet but some people might call that guy more cringe than corny but you were very adamant that he was corny Uh, yeah um i mean i think he was cringe also like especially with his spoken (laughs) spoken word um but corny corny i often in my usage at least and like at least the usage that that uh I've sort of understood other people um, can be the the real opposite of cool. Like if you were asked, what is the opposite of being cool? Um, corny, you're like trying, you're kind of trying too hard. Yeah. And you're not saying anything new. You're sort of saying, so this is actually, I just looked up some definitions, uh, um, the Cambridge, not, not that this is the way to do analytic philosophy, <laughs> but it's uh, corny here, Cambridge dictionary showing no idea especially of jokes, movie stories, showing no new ideas or too often repeated and therefore not funny or interesting. Um, and then other people define it as over, overly sentimental. Like when you, when, you know, if somebody were to walk, imagine like you're in a classroom and some guy walks in and says, I want to declare my love to, you know, Samantha is the most wonderful person I've ever met and gives flowers in the middle of it. You're like, Oh my God, that was so corny. Like there's some, there's something but in that sense, it's like it's corny, but it's also kind of sweet, you know, like okay, you well, can I'm use like, it as like uh, it's corny, but like I liked it or something like there that. There are some you know? people who embrace the corniness. So, like, yeah. in fact, they um, they resist being like they'll say, well, fine, if it's corny, like I, I want to tell my wife I love her in front of everybody. Like, like yeah. call me corny, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, so it's some in some ways it's sort of like being it's still defined as corny, but they're doesn't have to be like bad. embracing exactly yeah. exactly um they're re reappropriating re- the term um <laughs> corny jokes i guess really are ones that are so predictable or old it's funny though because now there's this like a resurgence of anti-humor in a way that what might have been seen as clearly uncool back in the day now might just be seen as meta and ironic. Like yeah. to tell like, why did the chicken cross the road joke? It was corny back in the day. Like it's like, well, you're not stupid. And now, now people might just do it ironically or, you know, I, it's, it feels like it's a concept that is harder to nail down because you have people who are doing it because it's funny to think that they're being corny. 
But so I think you're not answering the question of why, I guess. What was the question? About why the guy from Atlanta is corny and oh. why this is often used in, in kind of political. It's a way of like making a political ah. statement about why, you yeah. know, yeah, what yeah, this yeah. person is doing is. And the reason I say that is like, I think that like that's important to come to nail down this new way that the word is being used. Um Corny for for that guy, that character in Atlanta to me is a combination of of sort of him saying things that like like clearly he's just heard other people say like the you know like a lot of the of the trying to identify with the struggles of the black man. He was using like trite banal phrases about it, um, but it's also corny. I think has a flavor of inauthenticity where. You could be really corny if you're not being genuinely like. See, I would think that that's wrong. Like, that's the opposite. Like, he is being authentic. He's just, it's just lame and, you know, and lame corny. But, like, that. he is, like, I, that guy believe. I, I, I think that guy believes everything that he's saying. And if somebody's being inauthentic, then I don't think it's corny anymore. It's something else. It's like slippery or it's virtue signaling or it's well no like, i mean like yeah. take, so take vanilla ice back in the day who is you know be making rap songs and hugely like the accusation of him being a corny rapper was maybe something to do with the actual raps but it was also something to do with like that's not you you're not right you're, you're not you're black. adopting something <laughs> that's not you yeah <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of like what this guy is like this guy was acting as if right. he had this deep understanding of black but but he wasn't all right well let's get some necessary conditions then is is sincere See, this is like yeah you, sincere you could, kind of a necessary condition that, that you are like you think it's funny like that guy thinks that he is like connecting with the black experience um you think this knock knock joke is funny or yeah you know yeah, lin-manuel in, Ham in hamilton really does kind of feel like this is this is like something that can bring us all together and uh, and and make kids learn and appreciate history in a fun and like exciting way. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. I think that's that's actually right. Like the excitement of somebody saying, "Hey, dude, Tamler, check out this awesome rap that I wrote," and yeah. and then just saying something like really whack, and you're like, "Oh man!" Like that sincerity is that lack of self awareness about uh, about you not being funny or not being good or being yeah. lame lame you said lame lame is a really good word to accompany corny when you're accusing somebody of whatever this is i think this isn't a necessary condition because it obviously wouldn't apply to something like corny jokes but like it seems like in this new way that it's being used a person is doing something that that accords with the sort of the dominant kind of liberal moral, you know, I don't know. Are you worldview? getting all this from just the Lin-Manuel Miranda thing? I feel like you're applying, you're, you, you, you're using that as, as a, no, sort of or, or just stuff. you with the, you know, you saying with the Atlanta guy and that, that, that it's like, I am, it's, it's not virtue signaling. Cause it, the, the person I think buys the shit that they're, that they're selling, but it is something that just seems like, this person is posing, even though they don't know that they're posing or something like that, in a way that would come off as virtuous in the way that liberals kind of think virtue should be expressed. I think that you do hit on something, but I don't think it's political. Well, I don't think it's partisan. So um, uh, when the whatever we were calling this, the riots on the Capitol on January 6th happened, 
Yeah. I tweeted it out. These are the corniest looking rioters I've ever seen. Right. And there I was referring to like the sincerity with which they like prepped and bought like tactical pants, you know, and and like they were wearing just like they just looked so like they tried so hard to look cool, but they in fact don't look cool. And that's what I think Lin-Manuel Miranda is doing. And that's what I think. Yeah. The the white guy on right. He's trying really hard to look cool in a sincere way. And he thinks other people are thinking he's cool. Right. You know? Yeah. I think that's it. It's this pretense it's a pretension to coolness <laughs> that's juxtaposed at the same time with just you know like no this is like this is not cool it hasn't been cool for a <laughs> yeah. while if it ever was right. cool it's definitely not cool now and you doing it especially is even less cool than uh right yeah. right it's like fellow kids hey fellow yeah. kid, you know um okay so we I, I like you've hit on the the it's it's funny because at first i was like wait you're right about the sincerity part but why was i saying inauthentic It's like a weird thing where it's like you sincerely think you're being cool. You're trying to be cool. You probably think that other people think you're cool, but it's really not. It's it's really super not cool. And in some ways, you're trying makes it seem like it's not of you. And so it's kind of inauthentic in that way. Right. Like trying to yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You wouldn't be trying so hard to be cool. You wouldn't need to buy the tactical pants and the, you know, like the have like the granola in your side pocket next to your knee so that you can when you're storming the capital you can you have some some uh snacks yeah (laughs) and that even applies to like corny jokes like the the pretense there is that this is funny and kind of funny and new or interesting in some way or like maybe like some corny jokes somebody would thought was edgy but it's so like you know, th- that kind of humor hasn't been edgy for the last like 20 years. Right. And so <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's like, yeah, this mismatch between like your pretension and the reality of yeah. the thing that that only somebody and usually somebody younger will be able to call out right. and identify. Right, right, right. Because they have greater access to because the notion of cool is really one. Uh, it's an aesthetic notion that changes like fashion. So younger people have better access to what's cool and they're more likely to define what's cool. So like parents are corny all the time to their kids because, you know, it's, yeah, we've because they're parents. Yeah. What we've said has been said so many times. It's just, yeah. But I am interested in our, if we do this on a next segment to juxtapose corny with cringe. It's possible that cringe is a subset of corny, like, like, a, but I think it also I, has other characteristics. Yeah, I feel like there's an overlap. There's like a Venn diagram where you could be corny and cringy, but cringe yeah, it has this separate component. And it's, to me, a newer concept. Um, yes. Yeah. Definitely. Nobody was saying that was so cringe, yeah, like, yeah, in yeah. just, a, like, 2010, <laughs> I don't think. Right. They would talk about cringe humor, like the British office or something like right. that. But they, I don't think, it was not an adjective in the sense of, like, you would say that somebody is cringe. Yeah. Cringe. yeah. Um, it's, there's this funny sort of meta feeling that I'm having, which is my daughter listening to me talk about what cringe is, is probably really corny. Yes. Exactly. <laughs> like, yeah. Oh my God, dad. <laughs> like we should do a uh, conceptual analysis of sus. <laughs> if, like that. <laughs> yeah. When I like tried to like, uh, not even tried cause I knew that it was going to piss her off. Like I tried to use sus with my daughter. She just was like, I'm not engaging with that. Like <laughs> she wouldn't even pretend to be like annoyed or roll her eyes or whatever. She's just like, I'm not even going to engage. 
it's funny because some some sayings uh, or concepts, as we're calling them, um, some of these terms are actually old terms that have been sort of newly discovered by like yeah. the TikTok generation. And so my daughter, there's some, I'm, I can't think of the example now, but I said something and my daughter was just like eye rolling at me because she was getting the corny chills at me trying to use a term that was like yeah. of her generation. And I was like, fuck you. That term is from like 1985. Like I've been saying it for years, right. just not in front of you. Like we invented that term. You know, she's like, I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> That's a little sus, anyway, <laughs> that you're even saying that. All right. Uh, when we come back, we will talk about uh, definitely a not corny movie. The, uh, like that, if there's one thing you can say about Cache, it is not corny. Uh, corny movies is an interesting category. Yeah. 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 But that is your definitive conceptual analysis of corniness. Um, Somebody pu publish it in a coherent paper monograph and put our names. You could be first author. But yeah. Just put our names on it. <laughs> just put our, give, give us the pubs. Yeah. We need it. All right. We'll be right back. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check out betterhelp.com slash VBW. You know, Tamler. BetterHelp has been a longtime sponsor of ours, and we're very appreciative. Do you think it's maybe because they think we need the help? <laughs> I, I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think they, they see people who are clearly stressed, stretched too thin, high tempers, tempers right. that are shorter than usual, uh, probably showing strain in our relationship. So they, they think <laughs> maybe, that. you know, this is, and I appreciate that, that, that yeah. they've taken, you know, gone in this direction in terms of alerting us to this. They could probably like tell our blood pressure going up when we argue about Kuhn. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yes, if you are feeling like you, like us, might need some help, if you're feeling, I don't know, anxious or depressed, or you're just feeling like life isn't going the way that you want it to go, your relationships are suffering, or you're struggling with something like anger management or sleep, BetterHelp is a place that you can go to get help. You can get it soon. You can get it at your convenience through a variety of different methods from the comfort of your own home, and you can get it affordably. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours if it's so for some reason you don't like the therapist that was assigned to you, you can always uh, request a change. These are all licensed professionals. Unload the stressors, get some unbiased feedback. You'd be pretty surprised at what you might gain from it. Just see if it's for you. Our listeners, Very Bad Wizards listeners, get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash VBW. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash VBW. Thank you, as always, to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. It's not too late for me and you if we hurry.
Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. This is the time where we like to take a moment and thank all the people who get in touch with us in all the various ways that you do that. Um, if you want to email us, you can email us at uh, verybadwizards at gmail.com. If you want to tweet at us, follow us on Twitter um, at Peas or at Tamler or at Very Bad Wizards. You can join the lively community on our subreddit. A uh, lot of comments on recent episodes. Like, there's like uh, a lot of discussion. And uh, a lot of comments on our appearance uh, from when we posted. Oh pictures. God, yeah, that's true. That was, <laughs> that was rough. It's like, oh, I thought I think people might like to see a picture of us recording, and then uh, yeah, we get like a lot of breakdown on how we should be wearing shoes, or we, you know. or I was slouching, or we yeah. look old, some yeah. shit. Um, I mean, you know, the picture wasn't about us. It was about our recording setup. But, like, I, I, I was slouching, and we do look old. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're doing the best we can, people. Yeah. So, um, and, you know, we have feelings. We're- I was, I know, I was fighting the urge to post, like, like my professional headshot and just to, like, be like, I don't <laughs> look like that. <laughs> I was fighting to, urge, like, like, just to, like, post a picture of me just jerking off. Like <laughs> Um, so, so yeah, but we, I guess we love even that, you know, you know, weird way that we don't actually, but, um, yeah, you can also follow us on Instagram where there's just a more positive vibe, I would say. Um, yeah, Instagram is a happier place. It is. You can, <laughs> uh, yeah, like us on Facebook and just don't get in touch with us on Facebook. Um, I want to stress that. Like, you're, I, I feel like I wasn't even clear enough last time because I still think there is like a Facebook message. So, yes, stay away from that. Um, but we always do post on Facebook, um, our episodes and, um, and rate us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to us on Spotify. We're still waiting for our Joe Rogan buyout, like sellout, you know. Um, I know. I know. It's, so that we can retire and then just do this full time, Dave. If you want to support us in more tangible ways, we really, really appreciate that. Um, and we have some announcements to make in this. Mm-hmm. So so uh, you can support us. First of all, you can go to our support page, verybadwizards.com. And you'll see a link for our support page. You can see all the ways that you can support us. Um, we've also added, and I tweeted about this the other day, we've also added a page that lists all of our bonus episodes. I'll try to keep that um, uh, up to date. If you support us on Patreon at $1 and up, you'll get our ad- episodes ad-free. You'll get access to the beat collections that I've been doing for the past few years. If you are a supporter at $2 and up, you get access to all those wonderful bonus segments. Um, We have some more coming up. So in Montana, we recorded a couple. We released our one on ghosts. Um, Then what... What's the next one that we're going to release? Um, it was like top five oh, yeah, yeah, film, yeah. fun films, like yeah. comfort films, like comfort movies. That's right. Yeah. If you are a $5 and up supporter, you get to not only vote on the suggested episode topics that we do a couple times a year, you get all the bonus segments, you get the beats. You also will now, from now on, get access to, I just decided, I thought it would be fun to put out 
my Psych 101 lecture videos. So I'll be giving people a private Vimeo link to those lectures. I think there are 13 of them that I recorded for the COVID year. I figured, why, you know, why let them go to waste with Cornell students? Um, yeah, those rich so, fucks. Yeah, they don't deserve privilege. Like to have the only access to my wonderful lectures. Um, so I'll be putting those up. I don't know. Once a month, I'll put a link to those. And I might throw a couple of videos that I did. Oh, uh, good. Less good. well produced videos <laughs> that I That's did. Good. On but the content is much better. I'm all about just shine. And uh, I forgot the Brothers Karamazov, you get access to our five part series, which uh, we were just talking about off air about how how proud we are and how happy we are that we get to share that with you. You can also get that on Himalaya.com if you sign up for the app. You'll get access to that or you can buy it a la carte. And Tamler, do you want to, I'll do the drum roll. You can announce our new Patreon tier. Yes, we created a new Patreon tier. We we noticed that we had some um, really generous patrons who pay us $10 or more per month. And yeah. we wanted to reward people who choose to, uh, not per month, but per episode. And we wanted to reward um, patrons who, who do that. And so... We decided that we would do, and we're still ironing out the details of how this is going to work, but a kind of monthly ask us anything where um, we'll do a post for our $10 and up patrons. They ask us questions, and then Dave and I will record a, a video where we answer those questions, and we'll post that at the end of the month, beginning of the month, something like that. You know, should be fun. Uh, yeah. I'm looking forward to seeing how that goes. This is uh, something that we will, we hope will be an expression of our gratitude for that. If you are a uh, somebody who supports us at $10 or more per episode and you signed up um, before a couple weeks ago, then you should unsubscribe and resubscribe at that level so that um, you will get access to those benefits. Um, that will be, I think, the only way for you to do that. I don't think there's any way for us to 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 do that for you. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who haven't subscribed but but possibly want to or could, um, it it will be fine. It will be an option for you from here on in. Also, um, you can support us by giving us a one-time or recurring donation on PayPal. You can also go and get some swag. You can go to our T-shirt or mugs section of our page. You can buy a nice t-shirt from Cotton Bureau. You can get a very attractive mug. All of those things we very much appreciate. And thank you. Thanks, everybody. All right, well, let's get to our main segment on Kashe. This is, as all of our movie episodes are, we're going to be spoiling the, m m shit, the shit out, out of it. it. Yeah. <laughs> it's not like there's a big twist or anything like that, but... But no, yeah, I mean... One, obviously, if we like the movie, we want you to watch it first. But two, it, it wouldn't make that much sense. I mean, it's a psychological thriller and there's a plot involved. Well, you've been warned. Yeah. You know, you're adults, <laughs> uh, except some of you. So you make your own decisions. Um, let me give a brief synopsis for those um, listeners who haven't seen it or who haven't seen it in a long time. Caché is a film by the Austrian director Michael Haneke about a Parisian middle-aged couple, a public TV host and minor celebrity named Georges, played by Danielle 
Otoy and his wife Anne, played by the great Juliette Binoche. They're both great. They're living the life of bougie French intellectuals, both professionally successful um, and kind of doing what it seems like they're interested in. Um, and they have a 12-year-old son named Pierrot. We see them as they're viewing a, a videotape that an anonymous person, this is when we first meet them, um, a videotape that uh, was sent to them by an anonymous person. And the tape is just of the exterior of their house from a nearby street. Nothing's really happening in it, just some people walking by occasionally, some birds chirping. We'll get back to the birds chirping. A bike, a car, nothing. Soon they get more videotapes, which become uh, sometimes still the exterior, but uh, they, they progress along with the plot. Also some weird cards that look like they were drawn by like a five or six year old um or, one, or me yeah or me too yeah <laughs> of, of, a, of a boy with blood coming out of his mouth um there's one with a headless chicken and all they start to proliferate where they're going too. like they all the, these tapes or the cards start going to different places that are connected with george his work um his kids school and all of them seem to focus, we learn, on an Algerian named Majid, the son of George's parents. Um, who He was there, uh, the parents were their groundskeeper, and I don't know if the wife, I don't remember if the wife worked. Yeah, they, I know they both worked, the parents both worked for them, I think. Yeah. yeah. And so the, the groundskeeper and his wife were killed in the Paris massacre of 1961. This is briefly where the French police, there was a huge protest of the Algerian war in Paris and the French police killed up to 300 of them. It was hard to tell because I think a lot of it involved them drowning in the Seine River. Um, this is towards the end of the Algerian war where the people of French occupied Algeria were fighting for their independence. So that's what happened to them. And then you learn that Majid was going to be adopted by um, George's parents. And although the details are fuzzy, it seems like George did some devious shit for a six-year-old to get him ejected from his house. And so uh, Majid ended up growing up in a children's home, some kind of like foster home uh, type situation. Right. It's actually unclear because as a six-year-old, he doesn't remember where. Yeah. Yeah. They, he was told. Yeah. And we get a lot of this. It's not clear how much, but we get a lot of this from George's perspective only. So George goes and he starts to suspect that Majid is behind all these things. So he goes and confronts Majid. Things ex uh, escalate from there, leading ultimately to Majid slitting his own throat in front of George. George, uh, towards the end of the movie, is confronted by Majid's son with just accusations, but not anything concrete. And then the movie ends with us not knowing who sent the tapes, but with a tantalizing clue that we're, of course, going to talk about. So, Dave, you and I just rewatched this together in bed next to each other. <laughs> That's not even a joke. <laughs> <laughs> Way more intimate than I'm used to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. We went from never seeing each other to just lying in bed watching a movie in the afternoon. So I know the answer to this question, but why don't you tell our listeners, what did you think overall of Caché? I loved it. It was, uh, it was, first of all, just really well shot. The movie looks great. The, the pacing is one of those, you know, it's a psychological thriller. It's slow, but slow in the way that I like because the tension is just building. There's no soundtrack to 
manipulate your emotions at all. Yeah, there's it's, no score. Or there's no score. Yeah, there's there is just the silence. Um, oftentimes, you don't know whether you're watching a surveillance a surveillance video or you're watching the regular part of the movie, which is, I think, on purpose. You're getting fucked with. Um, so I think it builds builds nicely as a psychological thriller, the tension, and it leaves you know just the kind of open ended mystery that we obviously really enjoy. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that we yeah. keep coming back to right. like works of art that that do that. Yeah, um, it's in French with subtitles. Just if we, yes. that wasn't clear. Um, I guess we'll just go through the movie. I mean, it's clearly there's a couple things that are clearly going on. Number one, like Dave said, you, there's so many times where we don't know. Um, whether what we're watching is just like we're watching the movie of them or what we're watching is a videotape that is being sent that will, you know, and the, the way we usually find out is someone will rewind or, right. some, or there'll just be a voice coming where there's just shouldn't be a voice in the tape um, and it's the voice of the people watching the tape. And this will even happen at like George's work, like when he, uh, for, he hosts this just insufferable, like it's like a, almost a parody of if French intellectuals <laughs> talked about like, you know, uh, literature and like Rambo and, uh, but there's just even like I when you're- I prefer Rambo first blood part two. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, but like even then uh, we see, cause George, which is actually kind of interesting is editing his own, um, his yeah. own past. Uh, but in this case, it's the past of him having recorded a show with just four other insufferable French people. And, and like, even there, it's like we get that trick played on us where we think we're just watching George doing the show, but it's actually him editing it. So. Right, right, exactly. So there's there's something that the, the director does, which is, and we talked a little bit about this as we were watching, which is the quality of the surveillance footage is identical to the quality of the film, something which wouldn't be true in real life, right? Mm -hmm. Except for until you see the VCR sort of lines that are, you know, when they're rewinding or pausing. But because if you want to be realistic, you, you, it would be like a degraded kind of surveillance video, but it's not, I think, just to drive this effect, which I think it's, it's very, very effective as a way to build this tension. Not quite knowing whose perspective you're seeing things from is, yeah. is unsettling in a really, really good way. Yeah. And it just does that kind of throughout. It disorients you in ways that definitely seem to relate to how George and Anne are being uh, disorienting and unsettled and just like they're that and, and things are sort of they don't know exactly what to believe. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing is um, there is clearly some parallels here. Um, it's it, it can almost seem heavy handed, but I think actually we can talk about it. I don't mind when it does, but it this story of Georges and what he did to Majid, this is uh, parallel. It's like a little microcosm of right. the French, French and the Algerians, and specifically the Paris massacre, which um, the French, um, like France, had never really acknowledged or apologized. And one of the things that Georges is, is, is resisting with all his might throughout the movie is taking any responsibility for what happened to Majid, yeah. and that is parallel 
um, and, and reflecting at least a microcosm of the French struggling to accept their responsibility for their colonial adventure right. in Algeria. I mean, I didn't even know about the Seine massacre. So them wiping their memory, their collective memories of the way they treated the Algerians mirrors the way that Georges seems to have wiped his memory, albeit, you know, he was a six-year-old, so it's unclear whether he bears any true responsibility for this. But nonetheless, he seems incapable of, as the events unfold, incapable of admitting accepting remembering maybe but remembering seems like he does but uh but he's in a lot of denial about the events that he caused that led to this poor kid being taken away and who he does. he's never even bothered to follow up to see what happened to this kid you know what what became of him he clearly is content in his weird bourgeois middle class upper middle class life to like have forgotten that chapter of his history yeah and i think although the the parallels are kind of obvious with the french and the algerian and 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 their war it's also something that we can all relate to um especially now we're in a time where the country is struggling to accept it's past, struggling to know how to deal with it, how to face it. And we kind of carry on with our bougie lives, you know, not wanting to, we're not like George, who's just actively resisting and getting almost like defiant in in his resistance to refuse to accept any kind of responsibility, even when it's obvious. I mean, in some ways, and you said this before, and I think I bears repeating that like this movie isn't primarily, it doesn't primarily feel like it's, you know, a moralistic tale about this. These parallels are there in the midst of a good psychological thriller, but but the theme is obviously there. But in, in a way, um, us, say, being very clearly and obviously saying, well, whatever this country did back then, I, I obviously can't be morally responsible. For There's like state legislatures all over, across the country, like banning the teaching right. of our past in certain ways. And, and specifically, you can't tell kids to feel guilty because of their race. I mean, that's exactly what George is doing, right? Right. He is just putting a iron rule out there that we are not allowed to feel responsible. Um, And we can talk about the degree of his responsibility because I think it is complicated. That's something that's, that's, this is why this movie is not didactic in any way. It's... uh, Yeah. Can can we talk actually a little bit, because I think it helps set the stage a little bit about uh, George and Anne's life and yeah. their relationship because it's, it's you mentioned that he is a sort of like a mild celebrity um, it becomes apparent that so he hosts this sort of like talking round table discussion show where they talk about whatever you know intellectual authors seems like mostly yeah like literature yeah literature and um, it's on public television we find out and uh, he's clear he clearly thinks very highly uh, of himself he seems to take himself very seriously they live together along with Pierre, their 12-year-old son. Um, she is a book publisher, we also find out. They live in a very nice-looking apartment, but uh, they host dinner parties apparently all the time. And in the middle of the dining room, one of the primary shots that we get when we're watching these people talk to each other around the dining room table is this huge wall of books that are... Look, a lot of people have bookshelves in their in their house, but there is something very... Uh, 
deliberate about the amount of books and the placement of books, or at least deliberate on the director's part to tell us like these people think of themselves. As- well, and also like you never can see the titles of the books. <laughs> and often it sometimes seems so there's this cool parallel of on his TV show, they have as a background books, but they're blank. They're yeah. like, there's no, there are no titles. They're just fake books to be like, Hey, we're right. talking about books, books on this show. Like <laughs> yeah, yeah. that's, that's who we are. That's uh, really important. <laughs> Uh, yeah. that's my name. Right. And, but that, but the, his apartment is like that too. Like we never, I don't think you ever can make out a title of no. any of the books there, but they're all over the place. And he, and there's this one mirror, uh, that they have over their mantle. And when you look in the mirror, you see reflections of books. Yeah. So there's just you at, at, at every point, um, <laughs> right. you are seeing books in their house, but no windows and whatever windows there are seem, or very few windows seem Kate kind of caged in their whole, right. they live in this, it's not a gated complex. Cause it's like this, you know, kind of uh, Parisian street, uh, upper middle class, but not a huge apartment, not an ost- ostentatious no. apartment in any way, but they're still like, several sets of doors and, and like gates to get at like locked gates to get out so they're very well protected yep yeah protected uh, very comfortable in their sort of protected so isolated except for you know their other their other friends of the same class um yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. I don't right, know if you but to, not like yeah. not in any way alienated right. but but also not happy not they happy don't seem and, happy and um we'll get to what might be going on one of the things might be going on in the marriage but as as this the tension that comes from them all of a sudden starting to get these creepy packages that somebody's watching them and i think uh, again like to 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 reiterate what you were saying like these videotapes all they're showing is that somebody is watching them and that's just creepy right there's they're not like one of the things one of the effects that the director uses i think really wonderfully is that the the images are of a static cam. you know there's no camera movement in the shots of surveillance as you would expect um there's camera movement during all the other times but you can um, you can feel the stillness when it turns into one of those shots yeah and um but he, yeah. The thing is, he does that sometimes. But so he does it sometimes, and you don't know whether yeah. he's like, yeah, like um, as the regular shots. Right. And there, uh, there were both of us. I leaned over next to me in bed and said, "Like, is this one of the tapes?" Because <laughs> yeah. I, didn't, yeah, it's, it's unclear to me actually. Like, I think it might be fun to go shot by shot and see whether or not these all are. But sometimes you don't, because there's no clear person watching them. You don't know if the director's inserting a surveillance shot that yeah. that they haven't seen yet, or, um, but so as the tension. Right. Like as as always, like the tension will reveal the underlying problems in, in a relationship. So this is freaking them out. But rather than like be supportive or like, you know, try to figure out, get to the bottom of be this, on the same team, be on the same team. George clams up about it. He at some point seems to suspect who, especially when he gets the drawings, the drawings of the the a little kid with blood coming out of its mouth it's just in crayon or of a chicken with its head cut off and blood spurting out he seems to suspect now who's sending the tapes but he doesn't say shit but like he doesn't say shit but but he says like i think i might know who it is but i want to say which is just driving his poor wife insane like what do you mean you might know who is sending us these threatening tapes like and you're not willing to say and he becomes like an increasing asshole in the way that he deals with his wife so there's this tension in their relationship where you can just sense that she's very frustrated 
the viewers for it. Like we were talking about it. Like, yeah. like fuck. Like I feel exactly like she's feeling. Like the guy's a prick. You get so exasperated with him, and you know, and he's a very unsympathetic, I would say, character without being outright like violent or. Um, right. He's not. It, yeah. No. He doesn't do like he's he's unsympathetic in his unwillingness to face up to anything. But you know, every. Every character in that household has that. Now, I think this is part of it, like, you know, this kind of thing spreads. But the, the, at one point, the son disappears for a night, doesn't tell his parents w- where he is, which freaks them out, obviously. And then when he gets home the next day, Ju- uh, Juliette Binoche, Anne is kind of saying, like, what, what were you thinking? What were you doing? And he would literally will not right. just recognize that he has done something that's just obviously what a 12-year-old kid should never do. Right. Um, leave their, like, make your parents go into a panic. Yeah. Um, call get the them police, and call yeah. the police and all of that. And he just, ref- he's, like, kind of, like, reading something and, like, being like, what? Like, I don't even know what you're talking about. There's all these exchanges where one person will be like, are you fucking kidding me that you're not, like, telling me what you're doing? And then the the other person will be like, wait, what? Like, what are, what are we talking about again? And then, like, the, when the kid turns it around and sort of suggests that maybe his mom is having an affair, she kind of does that, too. She's like, what? <laughs> yeah. I don't know how you could have gotten... But we have seen kind of evidence of what seems like she is, although we right. can't be sure. We can't be sure. You so never is, know what whether what's true or what's not. Right. Another. So, but in in their frequent dinner parties, the staple the staple guests that are always there are uh, a couple named the man's Pierre and his wife or girlfriend, I don't know, is Mathilde. And uh, we see that Pierre is very close to Anne, the character of Anne. And this is um, like there's even one scene where she's so frustrated at her husband and him him being closed off that she's crying on his shoulder. And it's like I, a little creepy. Like it's not, in my, I don't know, maybe it's French culture or whatever to like hug and wipe the tears and kiss your hand like yeah. if you're just a friend. But it does make it seem like, hey, something might be going on. Here. And we learn just in the next scene that she had turned off her phone yeah. during that. But right. we, again, we don't we, we can't be sure. The couples definitely seem to be very good friends. But it's, again, one of these things where everybody has something that they're refusing to fess up to or to recognize right. in a way that is like, you know, in escalating ways, so frustrating. I don't know. Should we go through the movie a little bit? Yeah, I'm thinking l- like the ultimate example of that is when he... He kills himself uh, in front of George, and George's response to that is to go see, like, two movies. Yeah, he's uh, just, like, paralyzed. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, because let's go through it a little bit, because this movie is primarily a mystery psychological thriller, and that's what's motivating the viewing of it the, the whole time. Like, it's a, it's a, you're just, like, trying really hard to solve with the facts that you're given. You see the first shot and it's and it's just of the outside of their house during the day and you see them sort of like, what could this be? And they're trying to come up with theories. Is it Prairot and his friends playing a practical joke on his bougie parents or is it what is it? And the camera is somewhere like I think Dave and I might disagree about this. Like it seems some it's it seems very unrealistic that this camera is an actual camera within the reality of the movie because it's not totally clear where it could be placed. Right, um, and, and we don't get uh, until later in the movie. Perhaps we don't get a shot of where the camera is supposed to be. Right, it's down. It's it's clearly sort of off, slightly off center in the middle of a street. But one of the things that that makes it unclear is. The character clearly walks right past the camera without yeah. noticing it. Right. So it can't. So if if it is there, it would have to be 
some oriented somewhere in a you know, I, who knows how it would be hidden, but but it would be sticking out of the street. Like my theory is, it's plausible that it could be embedded within one of the like flower pots that are attached to the side of the building. But who knows? But it's yeah, it's not at all obvious. It's not obvious, and that's true with a lot of the shots yeah. um, that uh, that come now. So, but then so the the second one where you see uh, George walk right by the camera, you then get this very quick flashback, which is, you know, and you don't know what it is because you know nothing about Majid at this point. It's just a boy with blood coming out of his mouth. Little, little boy, shirt off, curly hair, blood, like coughing up blood. Coughing up blood. Uh, And then you see them trying to come up with a theory of of what it, uh, of of what happened. You know, by the way, one of the things I I don't know if this is uh, on purpose, but you were saying that the, that the director wouldn't put something in by mistake, but that the street is Rue de Iris, Iris, which is part of your eye. (laughs) So the street that the camera is on is like an eye that's watching. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Uh, We see, we do see, uh, again, we don't know if it's a flashback, a memory, a dream of this kid. We see a second time yeah. with coughing up blood uh, for slightly longer. Then, yeah, I was just going to say, I don't know if this is the right, that the son gets a postcard delivered yeah. to his school. And when the father goes to pick him up, which, in by the way, is in a scene where it's like a fixed shot outside of the school. So you're like, oh, shit, is this another surveillance tape? But then it sort of starts moving as if it were like on a on a, a dolly. Yeah. And you realize that it is either a surveillance tape or the director just giving you an exterior shot of the father picking up his son at school, which he doesn't normally do. They're talking, chit-chatting, and the son says, oh, by the way, I got this at school. And he pulls yes. out this postcard, and it's a postcard addressed to his son, um, and it says you know, to Pierrot from um, like on behalf of your father, like from your father. Yeah. Um, and it's a nut, it's a picture of a, a drawing of the kid in the very same style with blood coming out of his mouth. He's like, why would you send this to me? Which yeah. of course is and now the teacher is wondering why would, <laughs> yeah, why like, why would you would send it? Yeah. Yeah. So now like you're, you know, you're the father, your kid is now getting these things, right? You're like now involving, you're involving my family now. But you see like there's uh so the way that scene opens actually like the kid is surprised that his dad is coming to pick yeah, him up. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's clearly something that he doesn't normally do. And the dad says to him, Hey, look, I want to talk to you like now because your mom's not here. There's, there's some stuff I want to talk about. And then uh, the kid's like, okay. And uh, and then he says, oh, wait, by the way, what's the deal with this card? Yeah. And then we never know what um, Georges was planning to say to, um, to, to Pierrot. So, like, what do you think he was trying to say? I assumed that he was going to tell him, hey, we've been getting these creepy things. Like, I, I, so if this is if this is you and your friends, let me know. Maybe because the 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 husband and wife Pierre, um, George and Anne had talked about maybe talking to because. But the other thing he could have said, I mean, for all we know, he it might have been saying, "Look, your mother uh, and I are going through some shit." Maybe he does know. Like, uh, it's it's never clear whether he knows if yeah. Juliette Binoche is having an affair. It's never clear whether she even is, it, like no. that 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 she is or whether. Uh, but nothing that George does suggests that he knows, and that we really just have no idea. We have no idea. I, if I had a guess, I would say that George doesn't know. It seems to me that this is all uh, hidden 
We don't know what's true, what to believe, what's not. There's all it's a tantalizing movie in throwing you a lot of you know suggestions, but like very little gets confirmed. Like up to and including like. Did Majid have tuberculosis? Right. What, what else is going on between yeah. Majid and um, when they were kids? Right. So should we talk about because we haven't said that when he finally tells Anne um, what his theory is, um, he says, "Well, look, I think it's this kid Majid um, who I grew up with." And he finally, when he's forthcoming, he says, "I told lies about him." This is crucial, kind of, because he says, "I told lies about him," yeah. and then and then he says. I saw him coughing up blood and I told my parents and uh, the doctor came but didn't find anything, that old fool. And then he says, and then I told this lie about him where I told him my dad wanted him to kill the rooster in the farm uh, because it was like a nasty, you know, it had a nasty personality. So he chopped its head off. But in reality, and then he, in reality, though, like the father had never said anything like that. And so that part he admits is a lie. The first part that he says that he saw him coughing up blood, he doesn't frame it as, as something that he lied about. And, and so if he's having flashbacks or memories of the kid actually coughing up blood, it's very possible that, in fact, he was sick, um, but that wasn't part of the line. There's also a suggestion that Majid may have, like, kicked his ass a few times, yeah. you know, like, um, and that he was physically intimidated by Majid. That's right. One of the things that Majid says is a comment about his nose. Um, and when he says that yeah. he makes a fist, but it's a great sort of like use of that. The actor who portrays George does have like this, a nose that's very big and looks like it was broken at some point and punchable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 And, but you, uh, he's very convincing in denying that he's behind the tapes. Yeah. In fact, if it's so convincing that um, it's uh, to me not a plausible uh, theory. Like I don't think that that it, it would ever be a plausible theory that Majid was actually behind the tapes. If it if if that's if that's the truth, then it was very poorly done. But like I think the director is very clear that Majid is this sweet old man. Like he's not old, but he's it's very very sweet. Hum, like humbly appearing. You know, he lives in as you're pointing out, not. You know, he lives in what is obviously where poor people live. Like, in yeah, the not the apartment. projects in yeah. that it looks, I don't Just know, working like class. Lot, yeah, you know, where, like, yeah, it doesn't seem like there's a lot of drug dealing or whatever around it, but it's not like the high rises in the wire. But it's like, and it's very much in stark contrast to the house that, yeah. um, that, that George and Anne live in. And yeah, and so they have this exchange, and there's an interesting little dynamic where. Um, even though George ex- suspects that Majid is behind the tapes, he uses the French vu with him, whereas Majid uses uh, the more familiar tu. And that's, uh, and, and, you know, they, they have a little exchange about that. And, um, but he, he denies it. George starts to kind of threaten him. And you sort of, even though you don't like George, you sort of understand where he's coming from right. now because it really does seem like Majid is the only person. We don't know about the son yet. No, right. So it seems like Majid is the only person who could be like could dialing into know, yeah. these memories to um, to harass him like this. Right. And, but still, he's doing it in a way that's very disrespectful. It's there's At, at no point are you on his side. And, and Majid, uh, by contrast, you sort of, you believe him that you come out of that. Georges then goes home and his wife says, well, what happened? You went to this house of this person. You won't tell me who it is. And George says 
Yeah, nobody was there. Yeah, I went, you know, knocked, nobody was there. So, <laughs> and what, like, actually, let's pause and talk about this. Why won't he tell his wife? Well, so I think that um, he seems to have a lot of shame and guilt about these events. And I don't think he's dealing rationally with it. But one of the ways that he's dealing with it is by being super reluctant to release any information. Like he's just like sort of only at the points where he has to, does he reveal anything? And I think that he doesn't want to think bad of himself or his wife to think bad of him. Of him. Um, and it, he's just shutting down from like being able to feel any guilt and shame. He's right. just pushing it away so much that it's making him want to deny, deny, deny. Um, exactly. And yeah. like, yeah, just talking about it would be like admitting that it happened mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. Very strong parallel with the French who <laughs> I who just didn't really acknowledge that it happened. The, the, the Paris massacre happened until like 30 years, 35 years. And even then it was like 30 something people may have died. And <laughs> right. so like um, so so the parallels are, are, are there with that. Unfortunately, sometimes like that comes back to bite you in the ass. (laughs) And what we get, the next recorded videotape that we get is of George talking to um, to Majid. And then in a very heartbreaking scene, uh, Majid is a really, you know, he's like so poignantly portrayed by this actor, um, just breaks down and starts crying. And so you see that he was keeping a lot of stuff in being formally kind of polite with, um, yeah, I don't know if the way you said it made it clear what the, the next videotape they get is of that scene that we just saw, but that video recording continues even after George leaves and we see him just break down and cry and this, and, and don't we come in where Anne is watching it? Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So you know as you're watching it that that Oops. no, not at first, I think. At first you just know that it's a tape yeah. because it is at this angle. Well, first of all, we just saw the scene and we saw it from a different perspective. Yeah, we're seeing it from the back of the kitchen. So clearly there's yeah. a camera, a static camera somewhere in the back of the kitchen. But like with the street, it's not exactly it's not that it's impossible that it could be somewhere, but it's not clear where. And it's and it's surprising if there was really a camera there that, you know. Yeah, um, that the father wouldn't know about it. Right. Usually, if you want to portray that there's a surveillance camera and you're watching surveillance footage, you would have something where it would be. You would even maybe even suppose it's hidden in a plant. You would maybe show the yeah. edges of the plant sort of, uh, you know, getting into the frame or you would show what very commonly is the location of a secure camera, which is at the top corner of yeah. the house. And you would get that angle. No, we're getting the angle that a director might choose right. to shoot a scene. Exactly. Yeah. And it seems like it might be floating in the air or something like that, but somehow invisible. We, 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 we skipped over a scene, which I think is really important, and it relates to this, of George going to his childhood home, the home where he yeah. grew up and where this happened with Majid when they were uh, six years old. And he brings up, you know, George said, I had a dream about Majid. And the mother at first is like, who? I don't, who? I yeah, don't know who that, who that is. He said, Majid, remember the adopted child? She so the said, kid that you guys yeah, were planning to adopt. Yeah, right. Yeah. Exactly. And then she said, and then finally, but she, she does, they do that little game that's repeated throughout the movie of one person being like, come on, just let's, can we talk about this? Like, I know <laughs> that you know something and that there's no reason for you not to just admit it and for us to, to, uh, to have this conversation. But the mother eventually says like, yes, I... 
uh, I remember, but I, I, you know, it's a long time ago and it's not a happy memory. Yeah. And she has a bunch of lines just, uh, she's, she's very sick right now, something George didn't know. Didn't but, know. Like, clearly you get, you get the impression that he hasn't visited her very, yeah. like, very often at all. Um, the house that he grew up in is the, the, the house of an affluent family, yeah. right? Like it's, it's, a referred to as the estate by Majid yeah. and, um, and the only mention of any communication between him and his mom is, oh, since the last time we talked on the phone, um, you know, I've had all this happen. And so you get the sense that this guy is not a good son. Like his mom's sick. He doesn't even know. There's a woman working for her, like her, like a live-in nurse. He didn't even know that she existed. Like she's kind of bedbound. They have this interesting exchange uh, where he says, aren't you lonely? Yeah. And she says, are you not Because you can't go, aren't you lonely because you can't go outside? Because you can't go into the garden or because you can't go on the subway. Aren't you like, are you any less lonely when you're out there? Yeah. So, So there's that. It's kind of like you're walling yourself up from even when you're interacting with people that doesn't mean you're not lonely and then she also says and you know i have the tv that i can just watch and when it starts to bother me i turn it off yeah that's my family like yeah. or those, those are my friends whenever yeah. they bother me i turn them i off. turn yeah. them off i turn it off and it's like that's kind of the life that he's living both when because there's a lot of times where friends are over and they're asked to leave you <laughs> yeah, know yeah. like there's a bunch of scenes like that that's when right you just yeah, said that where, <laughs> where there are friends that are over and then they they have to leave because because they don't feel like dealing with them. But I think it's also like, I, you know, I, I remember what I want to remember. So as you said, it's very clear that there are only a couple of people in the world who would know enough to be doing this, to s- sending these postcards. Um, one of them is Majid. And, and we know, like we, we've seen the camera in his apartment. Somebody has access to Majid's apartment. The, the only other person is his mom. So that's why he, you know, it motivates him to visit his mom, but he still visits her under the pretense of like going to some work thing. Yeah. Like just gone there because he's so shook about like what's happening that he wants to talk to to the only, you know, other person who might, who, who might know. So we've seen him receive tapes. We saw his kid receive a postcard and there's a scene where he goes in to meet with what must be a network executive from yeah. the from the public television station where they're talking about like the future of his show or maybe a new show. It's un- it was unclear to me. Yeah. And he says, but really, the reason I called you in is because there's something pretty disturbing that we got. We um, we received a videotape um, and normally my secretary, you know, she would look at them and throw them away. But this one was something that she called me in to look at. And it was of you having a conversation with this man in his in his apartment, which so it's clearly a copy which we've of, seen already. Yeah, like his, the, his conversation with Majid, where he's accusing Majid of like doing all this. He's getting very angry. Majid is very, you know, docile and and just clearly says, "I love your mother," and you know, why would I do this to you? Like, I have nothing. I don't need anything from you. What would I want? Money? Like, I don't. Yeah. And then he breaks down crying. So the exact tip we've seen, and so the the executive is like. I don't want this getting out. You know, somebody could blackmail you with this. And he's like, yeah, because clearly I was the one getting upset on the tape. You know, like even though he tells him the story, he's like, well, look, man, I'm really sorry that you had to be involved, but I'm getting like threatened by this this guy and his, you know, trying to like stalk my family. And the network six like, oh, that sucks, man. You know, like it doesn't seem, though, that like he was really mad at you. It seems he's like, yeah, yeah, yeah I, I know. I know I was the one who looks bad in this. Like uh, yeah, and, and totally. you get a little bit of a sense that this might be just the thing they need to get rid of him. <laughs> <laughs> right. Or except that he does do good numbers and yeah, he seems yeah, right. to like, you know, that show has high ratings, whatever that means for this right. like French 
uh, TV and, show, but like and as he's leaving, he says, "Oh, could I get the tape?" Oh, he's like, "Oh no, sorry, I, I got rid of it." And, you know, I threw it away, which again leaves a, just a slight window open for me. Where like, right. did he just out of the blue mention somebody could blackmail you with this, and now he's saying like he got rid of the tape, like could have kept it he could have <laughs> yeah he definitely could have kept it and there's almost the implication that he certainly we're like george at that point we're not sure at all that right. that's what happened that he destroyed the tape like when they're talking about what happened george says something like i don't know like i don't know why he's doing it like he has some sort of pathological hatred for my family <laughs> i guess but we already know at this point that there's a lot more to it than that but and he, in the he, tape he's like your mother's such a wonderful sweet woman <laughs> like you know yeah. is like not not displaying pathological hatred at all exactly and so like this network as you like alluded to is not buying George's story and he knows nothing about yeah. any of this except the videotape but like so George is in this position where like nobody's buying even when he tries to be forthcoming or like at least pretends to be forthcoming about it it's just people aren't buying it. yeah he just seems like the he just has a punchable face and a lying attitude like it just seems like he's hiding something yes. and, and and everybody does yeah so should we take a break from like the plot stuff and just get out, out of the way but oh, really before you yeah, say okay. that, just a, like one thing, uh, Majid says, I heard your mother's sick. Yes. And in their first interaction, in the first interaction, there is, if this man has been estranged from, you know, if six, if the last time they had any interaction with each other is, is when the kid was six years old and he was taken from the family is, and he lives in a completely different world as we've seen from where he lives there's no way that he would know that his mom's been sick. He didn't even know until he went to visit her. And he and he went right from from the mom's house to Majid. To, to Majid. The next scene is that is that first interaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. How would Majid know? Yeah. It's, it's it's it was a weird sort of reveal that he didn't even pick up on. Right. Yeah. He didn't say like what? How do you like? No, he did. He asks him, and then Majid says, "It's not hard to guess." Yeah, that's weird. Very weird. Yeah. What does like, that mean? It's not hard to guess. Just because I guess it could be because of her age. You're such a fucker that, like, of course your mom's probably sick. Like you've driven yeah. her to 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 illness, um, or yeah, maybe because of her age. Okay. <laughs> we keep teasing what we're <laughs> yeah. gonna say, but we but if but Dave was like, did we talk about it and then made a, th- a throat, throat slitting? slitting. Yeah. I mentioned that it happened. Yeah. But the actual shot of that from the same angle as their first conversation in Majid's house. This is after, like, they've been, well, we didn't even mention that. Yeah. <laughs> right. This right. is like, we're, we're, uh, we got cocky, I think, when <laughs> we, uh, we thought we could just watch the movie and just come talk about it with no organization. <laughs> I sometimes at least like put notes and stuff. Right. You mentioned that, that, uh, that Piero is one of the things he does, you know, one of the things he did is like go to a friend's house without telling his parents and that the police came. So after that happened, when they don't know where their son is, of course, their first suspicion is that it must be the Arabs. So like they call the police, the police go to the apartment, round up Majid and his son, you know, arrest mm-hmm. them, presumably, or at least take them in for questioning uh, while George is riding in the front of the police truck. They're, yeah. you know, in the back, like probably cuffed. It's like privilege, as you yeah, said, yeah. when we were watching. Yeah. They release them, though, because there's absolutely no evidence. Well, no, they don't release them right oh, no, away. That's right, that's right, that's right. They, yeah. so the next day, yeah. They release them the next day because they get understandably pissed that, that they were called in for something they didn't do, yeah. as we, we don't, later we found out. We don't see their reaction. All we see is them riding in the back of the truck, but we later find out they were agitated. Speaking of amazing shots, them in the back of the 
the uh, truck. There's just these like, dark. It's dark, a nighttime shot. Yeah, yeah, very like kind of slow pans. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, uh, it's after this that Majid calls. He's at work again. He's invading ev- every part of George's life, and he says, "Come over to my house. I want to. I want to talk to you." So George, George goes. He says, I think just two things to him. He says, number one, I didn't, I don't know anything about the tapes. Yeah, I had no idea about this. I had no idea about the tapes. And he says, I want you to be present. Yeah. And then he, in one just quick motion, slits his throat. He, like pulls yeah. a knife out of his, what looks like one of those barber razors, yeah. like unfolds it and just. Whoop. Yeah. But in like. Yeah, like a half a second, yeah. all of those things are done, and there is this arterial spray. Up, yeah, up against the wall, just push red. He immediately slumps over, and on we we were just watching it again on this TV. You couldn't hear well, but like what you hear is the gurgling sounds of him as he's probably choking on his own blood that's yeah. coming through this, yeah. which we didn't talk about, but. Later on, when he says he died right away, yeah. I'm like, you know what? He looked like he was actually like gurgling like a little bit yeah yeah Yeah, i mean i i I couldn't tell again it's another one of those things where it's not fully clear because the sound it's like you you get it as i think we're like a lot of this from george's perspective like it's kind of muted like he's so uh like freaked out by that just happening right in front of him and like the sounds are kind of muffled about like uh, what's happening but um so yeah so 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 were you going to bring up the last scene before before we put our cards on the table. Yeah, so, okay. Well, I guess, yeah, right. So the last scene, um, which I missed the first time, I think, like, I don't know, maybe 30% of the audience might miss it because I never saw this in the theater. I saw it for the first time, I don't know, about five years after it came out. It's from 2006. Is just a a static shot from the same kind of angle that we've seen of the school. The same exact angle, I think, is when when he picks him up from uh, the... the, At uh, first, when he picks him up. Um, and it's, yeah, it's a static camera as, mo- as most, but not all of these, of the recorded videos are. Yeah. And you see the son of Majid. Who does, who's never named. Who's never way. named. Yeah. yeah. He has no name. And, and Pierrot, who's considerably younger than him. The son is, looks like he's about 18, right? 18 yeah, or 19. 17, 18. Yeah. And yeah. Pierrot is 12 and they're talking and they seem like kind of an animated at first you're thinking, oh, is he intimidating Pierrot? But it doesn't seem like that. It seems like they're kind of on the same page. Uh, Pierrot's doing a lot of nodding during it. And then he he leaves. And It's clear. Like, yeah, he goes and gets them outside of the school. He he goes, gets them. They sort of walk. He takes them away from the group of friends he's talking to. He puts his hand on his shoulder and he's telling him something. So it's like very clear that what's happening is he has taken them to the side to, to communicate something to Pierrot, like he, he, but, but we don't know what. And, and, and they shouldn't know each other. And we have no, Pierrot, reason, yeah, like, these families. Yeah. On, on George's own account, there has been zero contact with any of the families since they yeah. were six years old. There's no reason we should, they should know each other at right. all. Know of each other even. Yes. Right. But Pierrot doesn't seem surprised no. or like scared or in any way so it seems like they knew each other it seems like they've had previous interactions right. yeah yeah which leads to the theory that uh they have worked together in some ways to send the tapes to the george and Anne, maybe as a way of like f- trying to force george to, to recognize to acknowledge what he's done um so that 
that could be. There, there's a few reasons to think this is true. Number one, like, like who else could it be yeah. in, who had access to Majid's house besides right. the son? Right. The other thing is there's this weird scene, which we haven't mentioned yet, at a dinner party where um, somebody knocks on the door. Uh, uh, George goes out to try to see who it is. And when he comes back, there's a videotape like in the what seems like the doorway. Yeah, so like block, like when the door starts to close, it seems like it's yeah. blocked by something. So yeah. it, it seems like he couldn't have missed it on the way out of, as you were describing before, like whatever three doors he has to do to get yeah, outside. Like, exactly. Right. Like just like one cage after another right. um, that he has to get through, which I think is up is up. One possibility is that you know as they were having a dinner party and he gets taken away by the door buzzing um it's conceivable that majid's son rings the doorbell Pierrot runs down drops yeah. it uh and when he comes back he's already back up in his room because there's enough time for that to happen so 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 that's the it's really them or something more postmodern right exactly. like so because it's not it's not like it's Anne. like it can't be anybody else no besides, that's right uh, that's right and that that more postmodern possibility is something that a few, like a few critics, have written uh, this possibility where it's like I don't know how even to say it. The director who has sent the tapes, right. or it, the tapes don't matter. They'll just say like, "Well, the tapes don't matter. Like, what matters is that he's confronting his, you know, this past." But the yeah. tapes matter. Like, if you're to me, like I, I resist this because. The director has made a psychological thriller with a mystery built into it. I'm fine with there being no clear answer, which might be the very thing that he wants, but I'm not comfortable with the thought that there was no answer in the director's mind and that he just used the structure of a psychological thriller to make some broader point. But so then the only person it could be then is Majid's son and, and Pierrot, and that's unsatisfying on a couple levels also number one it's it's a very elaborate and perfectly executed like plan in terms of like the shots in terms of just yeah. getting him to find the apartment in the yeah. first place but making it kind of also difficult so it's a little hard to make out street signs as they're as they're driving like it is done so well and in the end it's a 17 year old and an 18 year old and a 12 year old that don't fuck up at any point also what's their motivation well Okay, so um, there is a final confrontation after Majid's suicide where uh, Majid's son goes and confronts uh, Georges in the, in, at his work. It's a great scene where he's like, I want to talk to you. He's like, I don't have time. I don't have time. He's like, no, I really need to talk to you. He's like, sorry. He gets in an elevator. Majid's son gets in that elevator with him. And yeah. there's this just long sort of tense uh, moment where he's just waiting for uh, George to get off the elevator. Somebody comes in. They're looking at each other. You can see George looking back at him in the mirror. Uh, you see Majid's son looking at him. A lot of mirrors in the movie. A lot of mirrors in the movie. Yeah. And so he, he follows him off the elevator, says, we need to talk about what happened. And he's like, I'm not going to talk to you. Stop, stop bothering me and my family. He's like, well, if you don't talk to me now, I'm going to go in and make a scene. Like, this is, uh, this is full George just saying, I'm not going to, you are not going to get me to feel any responsibility. <laughs> yeah. So that, like I wrote down a couple of the lines. He says, I refuse to be incriminated by you. 
I, you'll never get me to feel responsible. What do you want, an apology? This is so inappropriate. The guy's dad has just killed himself. Right. And You uh, won't even give him five fucking minutes of your time? And you, you were there. And he's like preemptively saying, like, do you want me to feel incriminated? The, 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 Majid only says at the end, like, I wanted to know what it was like to have a man's life on your on your yeah, conscience. Now I know. That's what Majid said, says. Majid's son. Majid's son says to yeah. George, Say that line again. I wanted you to know. I wanted to know what it felt like to have a man's life, life on your conscience. conscience. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Uh, and now I know. Because I want to get back to that. Yes. The, the other, like, I thought thing that was very interesting about this scene is there's two moments where the son is making, uh, like, a, a conscious decision to enter somewhere that he doesn't belong. The first yeah. is the elevator, which you mentioned, and you see him for a second pause, pause. Yeah. and then go into the elevator. And then uh, afterwards, which you also mentioned, but like uh, George is still trying to brush him off after they've had that awkward elevator scene and then just kind of walks into his uh, uh, into his, his kind of common office with everybody there. Yeah, they're glass same doors. They're, glass yeah, doors. Yeah, they're glass exactly. doors. So he sees yeah, him going doors. in and like, you know, yeah. taking his calls or whatever. And that moment, he literally is like, it's literally like maybe a, a second or two seconds of him pausing. But in those two seconds, you just see his resolve. Like yeah. he is like built up his will to enter. Yeah. And this is the, this is George's worst nightmare <laughs> is that like his spaces are getting invaded. Yeah. Like, and everyone can see, everyone can see how he's behaving. But then, you know, the, the point I wanted to highlight here is the son is also making these decisions to go somewhere where he doesn't feel comfortable um, and, and, and he's doing it anyway. Yeah. Like he's going to do it. He's going to do, put like no stone unturned into at least trying to get George to fess up some degree of responsibility for what happened. And then just realizes at the end, it's not happening. Yeah. And like, like I, I don't want, it. I don't want anything from you. I guess yeah. I don't want anything. From yeah. You. I got, I like, I now know the answer. Yeah. Um, you you pointing out that this is his nightmare of somebody invading his space, especially the other, right? Which is very yeah. strongly, uh, the, the, the feel of this is very much the other, the Algerian other, the poor other yeah. in my life. You pointed out to me, I don't, I actually don't remember if you said it <clears throat> clearly in this conversation, <clears throat> the books that serve as the background to the dinner table, the fake books that serve as the background to the, the, the scenery, the backdrop of the show, yeah. the vertical lines in the office of the network exec the, the, that are etched in the window that kind of look like books, the vertical lines yes. throughout wherever he lives are like bars, yeah. right? They're like this these prison bars that are keeping people out. The, the threat of the other... There is this comfort that he has in his books. Like you can, you can really be so proud of a book. And on his show, I'm sure he has all these intellectual discussions about like these things, like the you know globalization. But he can't confront it in his own life. Like he can't. It's like just very much he has created this intellectual wall around him. And right. And even he's the editor of his own show. <laughs> yeah. So like he can like he needs to have control over like his product. And so and he's losing control. Yeah. He's losing control over being able to edit out like the like the mom. Right. Uh, you know, like I can't I can just turn it off, tune it out whenever it becomes too uncomfortable for me. But not anymore. Right. Uh, yeah, there's, there's this great juxtaposition, too, with the you know, when he's in the video control room telling the editor, OK, at this timestamp, I want you to cut this part out to so splice it from here to where he starts saying this. 
And so, you know, so as, as we do on this podcast, yeah. even um, the juxtaposition between that and the surveillance footage where it's so he has so little control over it that that there is you would obviously edit out all of the boring parts right. where people are walking by. Um, but do you remember there's a scene where he just stops watching it and she's like, no, like like they're yeah. like, what? keep keep it on. He doesn't want to see it. Those it's unedited like videos are are reality. Yeah. And he can't handle that, right. like that reality. Exactly. Like he is trying to remember things his own way. He's trying to edit his memories, yeah. edit his life, his feeling of complicity, his feeling of response. He's editing all that stuff out. And all that stuff is just flooding into his life and every aspect of his life, his professional life, his kid, his, his, his marriage, and he can't keep it out. And he's trying. In the one of the last scenes is he comes home early from work, broad daylight. He calls his wife who's at work. So it must be before five o'clock. He's, he's gotten home and he goes and takes two sleeping pills yeah. and calls his wife, says, I'm, I'm home early from work. Um, I'm just going to sleep. He goes into his room, you know, like draws these, uh, those like blackout blind, clearly like blackout curtains and just like goes to sleep. That is him. He's like, well, I can't edit. I'm just going to like re black, like re black, but I'm going to edit by, by like not, you know, not even dreaming probably like I'm going to take no, these pills, you know, not cause not, not dreaming because it's after he does that, that, well, I think he's trying to not dream. I think he's popping these dream. pills to like, just, yeah, I just don't want to think about this. Yeah. And it doesn't seem like a dream actually. Yeah. You get the static shot, which is just so heartbreaking. Uh, this is the hardest part for me to watch, like more than the slitting the throat scene. You see a static shot of what you presume is the past of the estate of Majid being taken away by people who are being rough with Majid and yeah. not really caring at all. And you see the mother, presumably the mother, you know, being very upset and, and being led into the house so she doesn't have to watch it anymore. So she doesn't have to. It, it kind of seems like it's maybe from young George George's perspective um, in the barn, yeah. but we don't know for sure. And then there's this tantalizing thing where Majid, the, is, but Majid is yelling. He's like, I don't want to be I don't taken away. Go. Like and they're being, being physically, physically grabbing him and putting him. It's like, you know, it's like the men in white coming, but yeah. where it's like a man and a woman who clearly have come to take him like to a six year old home. kid. Yeah. 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 And then like it's and it's heartbreaking. And then there's this weird tantalizing clue, although I don't know what it suggests necessarily, but the soundtrack of the birds. And I actually noticed this, the, 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 I guess my first rewatch when I watched it with Eliza before I, I did this for my class, it is the same birds that are in the opening shot. And it's that same birds style. Chirping, the sound of the birds, the chirping. birds chirping yeah. in the opening videotape. Yeah. So it's the same, it's, it's, it's the same thing with just occasionally a kid screaming, like, I don't want to go. And, and an and occasional chicken at the yeah. end. But, um, so that's weird, yeah. right? Like what? Like it's it's not clear what to make of that. Right, right. Um, my theory is that the sound designers got lazy, and they're like, "Oh, you need birds? Yeah, I have a bird track already." Oh yeah, it <laughs> happens to be the exact one that we used in the opening yeah. of the movie. Although now I'm curious. Now I want to line up the two soundtracks and see if they actually line up perfectly. Like 
Like, I think they do. Yeah. I, I, I was paying attention to it again yeah, this time. I, I, like, I noticed it the first time. The, so the postmodern, like Dave was shitting on the postmodern take, and I actually think that there are better and worse versions of the, of the postmodern take, but like there are just as many clues that it could be yeah, that, that, like or tantalizing like suggestions, like the sort of, it seems like, if not impossible, very difficult locations of the camera in all the tapes like it does kind of seem like these things are almost magically appearing yeah uh, they're amazing quality <laughs> yeah um, exactly so there was uh, a, a couple things i wanted to say about majid's son when he confronts uh uh george at work one is you you had said something about like really like this 17 or 18 year old kid is getting away with this perfect like this perfect plan i think in fact that he it goes terribly awry. I think that one possibility is that he has been bitter. Uh, his, you know, you can imagine him like his father's not bitter at all, but he starts harboring resentment. You mean we could have had this like life where we were also raised with by these like rich, you know, upper class people. Yeah. This fucker's on TV, and like yeah. I'm living in this little apartment with with my dad. Um, he hatches this plot. Let's leave Pierrot aside for for a minute. Um, he hatches this plot to psychologically sort of torture who knows to what end may, maybe just the impulsive sort of like revenge that you might that you might have when you're when you're 17 18 or just to demand that you don't forget it yeah that you don't or, or like, right, that right. you that you face up to it in some way that where the plan goes awry is his father kills himself and i think that's the that is uh, one of the reasons that he is so upset about this when he confronts George. And the reason I asked you to repeat that line is because of this on the second watching when he says, I just wanted to know what it feels like to have a man's uh, life in your, uh, to have caused a man to die. Right, now, like a man's life on your conscience. Yeah, yeah. Now I know. I could read that also as him dealing with his own guilt for having done this stupid plan and ended up having his father commit suicide because of it. But it doesn't make sense in the context of that scene, which is like he's clearly wanting something from George. Naturally, you think he's referring to George just by the context of their conversation. He didn't need to come to the office to know if what you're saying is right. He didn't need to confront George at all to know what it felt like to have a man's life on your conscience. No, but, and I definitely think that like the primary reason right. for him saying that is to confront George but I can't help but think that he is one he's not I don't his denial of sending the videotapes isn't that convincing not nearly as convincing as Majid and I think that he is dealing with guilt in this scene as well like even though he's angry and he views George as the the reason that this all happened I think that he realizes that his actions like led to his father dying and so when he says that I could almost see it as something that you say that comes out of your mouth and then you're like, oh, I guess now I know too. Yeah. Right. Where, which, yeah, you know, maybe. Yes. Um, I guess when I said perfectly executed, I mean, obviously he didn't want his dad to kill himself in front of uh, George, but technically. Or at all. Yeah. Or at all. Yeah. Uh, technically oh, like the perfect. Yeah. yeah. The videotapes is like as a form of psychological torment that and just the, you know, the placement of the video camera, the placement of the tapes. Then Pierrot, who presumably is in on it is like what's the deal with this card like yeah i mean how like with this uh theory how do you make sense of pierrot so there are two things that the the um all of the sort of 
uh, articles online that I read, which is all of them, like probably four or something, um, don't mention one, the mother just not showing up for breakfast. Yeah. Two, the confrontation of Pierrot to his mother for having an affair with Pierre. I think that one of the the possibilities is they're involved in this scheme with videotaping um, the family. He, at some point, sees actual videotaped evidence of his mom having an affair and is so distressed by it that he leaves and goes to his friend's house and doesn't want to like talk to his mom, much like you know the non-confrontation of his father. When he comes back and confronts his mom and his mom's like, no, why would you think that? He's not convinced at all. Like he's upset up until the very end. And he he seems to me like to know for sure that his mom is having an affair. And I think that the reason the the way that he found out is because uh Majid Sansa showed him the videotape. Right. 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 So he would have already been in on it, but like he didn't realize this was like collateral damage yeah. him finding out. Either about that it. or that's how he brought him in. Right. Like, I was, you know, I was showed him that. He was yeah. like, dude, right. you gotta... He's very cold with his mother and very accusatory. And that's where Anne has her moment of like, oh, what do you mean? I can't <laughs> yeah. I can't believe you'd say that. Yeah, he's uh, just a friend. He's a friend uh, yeah. of both your father and that's but... absurd. <laughs> and they, which George uses that same line. It's absurd, like that he he keeps blaming me. Majid keeps blaming me for what I did. There's this scene after that where um, Pierrot is talking to his dad. Um, this is also afterwards. And the dad isn't being like uh, Julia Pinoche. He's not saying like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you? Um, he's just saying, I'm glad you're home. I love you. Yeah. And it seems like he seems like he's like, I love yeah. you. He seems yeah, yeah. almost kindly to his yeah, dad. for sure. That is not somebody who would be sending these tapes and putting his dad through this kind of torment if they had that relationship. But it could be that if the kid is in on it and he's really kind of anti his dad, that he's fucking with his dad at that he, point. He was still very uh, distant from his dad. Like the yeah. dad's clearly sort of being even like kind of an incompetent father at this point. But going, yeah, but, but more nice about it than he normally he, yeah, would Yeah, yeah. It's very possible that he's involved in this plan. He's not quite clear like the emotional, the real emotional consequences of doing this might be. And uh, through through it, he finds out that his, his mom is cheating that's why he's being kind of nice to his dad. Like he feels bad. Like yeah. he's, you know, and so he's, he's sort of nice to his dad, even though he was sort of like involved in this. But there's another thing we haven't talked about, which is uh, Pierrot, the son, is like a swimmer. And oh, there yeah. are all these scenes of like going to swim meets. And there's even one where his parents are super proud because he wins one of the races. In the middle like, of their yeah. like biggest fight, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah. They're like hugging each other because their son won this one. There's there's like extended scenes of like the coach telling him, no, you're like, you, you can't breathe while you're doing your like turnaround. Right. I bet if we analyze those, what that coach is saying, like when you turn around, like it's all, it's it's like reverse. They're, they keep, it's just like them being about, I don't know. 15 feet from the wall of the pool and practicing their turn. So it's just yeah. kind of going back and forth, back right. and forth. And the coach is coaching them on that. I bet. Cause like so many of so many scenes in this movie, even when they're not talking about the main thing, they're talking about right, it, right, you know? Right. And yeah, like, yeah. I bet that that's like that too, but they're shot. It's like the most surreal kind of, uh, aspect of the movie just with the colors and the you know, slow tracking shots of the of the kids in that race they have no connection obvious con plot connection yep. at least and even obvious thematic connections with the rest of the movie yeah yeah 
I, I but don't there. I feel like there has to be a reason that we just don't know yet. Like, but this is why I think I, I, I think the interpretation I'm leaning towards, which is that these tapes are a projection of George's guilt, guilt that's just been pressed down and denied and. Um, and it's just breaking through. And this is the way that it's breaking through is through these videotapes, which obviously is impossible in, in one sense, but we're getting so much of this from George's perspective. That's why I think like, you know, the stuff with Juliette Binoche and her affair, it's like all these things are bubbling up to the surface and George is keeping them down at a conscious, you know, consciously trying to keep them down, but they're breaking through. And there's so many scenes of people either going or not going into places where they don't belong because of like class stratification. There's even like that a kind of parallel to the, the sun. I, I was thinking this when we were talking about it. The sun making the decision to go into the office or into the elevator, Majid's yeah. son. There's a parallel when uh, when Pierrot finally comes home, uh, there's a mother, and she's clearly like a working mother, single mother with this... Yeah, uh, even when he finally gets back after this whole disappearance. Yeah, in the thing. morning. Yeah. And so the, the mother of this friend of Pierrot drives, drives him home, and they have this conversation, her and Juliette Binoche, on the threshold of their entryway into their house and we don't know anything about this mother but she's working nights she does she yeah. can't afford like to keep tabs on her kid she she's very apologetic she's, she's wearing clothes that aren't like the ones that yeah. Juliette Binoche, Juliet wears. Binoche yeah. wears and Juliette Binoche keeps asking her into the house like yeah. come in she's actually being really nice and she keeps uh, refusing yeah, that's good that's a good yeah yeah because she knows her place yeah yeah and she doesn't like, and this is, and that's what I think. Like, that's exactly what the Majid son doesn't do at the yeah. end. He goes, he knows that it's not his place to go into yeah. that elevator or to go into this like public television, you know, like offices. But he's doing it, whereas this woman is keeping her place, yeah. in spite of like maybe, maybe fake, but not obviously fake kind of entreaties to to come in. Yeah, I think. And Juliette Binoche is being genuine, but I think it's one of these things where like, especially when you're the, the lower class person is like aware of the th yeah. the weirdness and the rules more than like the person who's in power yes, is. Right. Because um, yeah, I can afford to be yeah, kind of oblivious. Exactly. It's almost sympathetic to be oblivious. Exactly. There's a, uh, you know, when at the end, when he comes back from after the confrontation with the, the, the Majid son, um, when he chose to go in and say, you know, call him out. This is like, I'm like 10% convinced of this, but he, when he gets home early and goes, takes two sleeping pills and goes to sleep, I like, I think it, he might've gotten in trouble at work. Yeah. Like, I think that actually like somebody put two and two together. They're like, oh, this kid, yeah. the father committed suicide. There's this tape of him, like, you know, being angry at him. And like, it's very possible the network executive was like, yeah, buddy, we can't have you on yeah. this show anymore. Because, the, yeah, they're at a transitional <laughs> yeah. place where I guess his show has right. to be renewed. It has to be renewed and it has, the decision hasn't been made yet. And, He's like, but yeah. no, no, but don't worry. I'm sure it'll be, hap you know, yeah. it'll be happening. Uh, he calls his wife and he says, look, I everything's great. Like he's still kind of in denial yeah, about yeah, everything, yeah. but you're right. I think that's totally right. Yeah. That's something like, it makes sense that this might've been the final straw for that uh, television executive. Yeah, like, right. I don't <laughs> like, need whoa. this. We don't need some this. Algerian but, kid coming in like yeah, after his dad. <laughs> yeah, like now I'm kind of convinced that he was fired. <laughs> that, yeah, he, he, was so, yeah. That his, he was told that, it, that they're not because right, He loves his work. Like he wouldn't come home right. like at three in the afternoon and take two sleeping pills. Um, there's a scene earlier on- totally. 
totally. uh, in the police when they're so when they first go to the police about the videotapes. It's very early on. It's like basically like if you walk, they're trying to cross the street to get to their car, but like there's a big van. So you can imagine you're about to cross the street and you just walk out into the street, but you're, the van was blocking your view of the traffic. You're supposed to like you know, kind of like, like stick your neck out around to see if there's a car yeah. coming, but they don't, they walk right out and they're in a black kid on a bike almost hits them and has to like swerve really quickly. And, uh, George just gets incredibly angry at him, blaming him for it. And it's obvious that the, it wasn't, the kid was just riding his bike. Like yeah. it's obvious that George should have known, but his blaming of the other for the, for what was in fact his fault is like clear in that scene. Yeah. I mean, you know, like a lot of these, like I think the main plot too, it's, there are two sides to it, right? Like on the one hand, I, if I almost hit somebody, even if it's their fault, yeah. I, I'm like, Oh, I'm so sorry. Like, mm-hmm. you know, because mm-hmm. I'm the I'm on the bike and yeah. they're and they're a pedestrian. Right. Even though he's getting accused, he's pretty aggressive too. So I, there is two sides of it, but you do, you're never on George's side. No, and in because fact, he's such a dick. He's such a dick. It. And in fact, I think that the kid on the bike might have responded very differently if yeah. it weren't for the, the very first thing that comes out of yeah. his mouth is like, and he's like, I love the way he confronts him. He's like, say that again. Yeah. You know, he's exactly. like, say that again. <laughs> no, right. Which is exactly the same thing with Majid. Like he goes in with Majid when he meets him the first time and he's already like yeah. uh, accusing him. Like if he had gone in a little more humble, a little yeah. more look, I'm sorry, but you know, maybe that could have gone, yeah. th- that could have gone differently. Absolutely. Absolutely. It really does. You know, the, the parallel that you were drawing earlier, but uh, like at the very beginning about sort of like, you know, the, this like legislating against teaching uh, students yeah. that they, they should feel guilty or something. Like, I don't think that's what they're doing, but that, that anger, like, how dare you make me feel bad? Right. Like is exactly that, that attitude that George has throughout the movie Yeah. to get to the theories I think too, like there is, it's definitely true to me that this is not an open and shut case. Like, I don't even think that within the work, there are enough clues to give any answers. Right. And so I think that there is a way in which like whatever the quote unquote postmodern view is saying, the videotapes and the mystery of who's sending them is not the important part of this film. Yeah. I think that's, that's right. I do think, though, that the that the power of this is that it is a plausible psychological thriller with probably like an, a real interpretation of in world events that are happening um, or else I would lose it. I would say like, well, I, there are so many ways to tell, uh, you know, like, a, why would you make this really compelling mystery story if you didn't have, you know, why would you give us this tantalizing last scene where we see that the two sons know each other? Yeah. Well, right. I think it is the two sons seeing each other is just another it's another tape. It's another example of these worlds, which should be kept apart, coming together. So now it's like the sun and the two sons. Even if it's optimistic, like, no, no, not at all. It's just more of his fears coming true. Uh, It's it's like this world is I think these two themes that we've picked up on are connected. It's people staying in their place and the place of uh, the Algerians right now is, you know, the French are going to treat them you know, they're not going to invade their country anymore. They're not going to occupy their country anymore. But in exchange for that, 
you stay in your place. We don't have to like accept any kind of responsibility or face you or face up to what's happening. And all these tapes are invasions of that. That last tape on the postmodern interpretation, just that this is a projection of George, is still George's like, you know, paranoid imagination of spaces being invaded again. Right, right. So so this like it's all in George, like it's all sort of like George. But the it's thing a is, projection. It's not like it's uh, but in it his head. It's a symbolic it's, projection because like there there is a plot involving his wife, like seeing the tapes as well. Like there is like Well that right. That's the I think frustrating part of this theory is that what is like them going to the police and 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 talking about them telling their friends and i think it is very deliberately open-ended in the sense that like you said there's not yeah. enough there's not enough clues but i do think like to me the most like satisfying involves the tapes being somehow in some way a projection of george's like subconscious feeling of guilt that he keeps pressing down but that he can't press down anymore and it's just bursting to the surface at every level of his life yeah no i mean i think that's what it might mean but i don't see how that could be like i don't even get the explanation for what like the the existence of the tapes in that world then it's like it's very to me very consistent to say well like the most plausible theory is that he's creating these tapes and it's just that that's what it's evoking in George. Like, that's his deepest yeah. fears coming true. Like, See, I just, then I don't buy... I don't, by the way, I don't think it's that implausible, one, that this this plan isn't that complex. It's like, here are like four videotapes that I made and I've sent it. If you want to give instructions for how to get somewhere, videotaping the car ride and the walk up to the apartment is actually like very consistent with the other way that he's been communicating. So I don't think it's... And I also don't think it's that implausible that the angles are... the uh, The angles... Like, I just don't think like there's very you could you could hide it in in one of those potted plants, like at this that right height above the cars at that angle looking into the street. If if the whole theory that this is sort of a postmodern projection, like the videotapes aren't real things, hangs on the implausibility of getting the camera no, in the it right angle. Hang on it. Like, that's not like it's not like yeah, a decisive <laughs> fucking case, obviously. But what I'm saying is like if you didn't if he didn't want us to like ask, like, I think the, the thing I don't like about your explanation is you have to start thinking of the mechanics of it. And then when you think of the mechanics of it, Haneke is making it deliberately hard to imagine that this is the, like, this is dreamt up by the son of somebody who doesn't know them and doesn't know their personalities. Ah, but remember... But I know his dad has been telling him some stories. And his dad clearly has some communication with his mom. Yes, maybe. Right. Although we don't have any evidence of that. So, like, you do have to start putting this stuff like the evidence is that he says that he knows his mother's sick. Yeah. Again, but that's more easily explained by that. This is some projection of George where, like, he now knows about his mother, like another aspect of his life that's getting. But what's the theory here that this is all like this whole series of events is just sort of like the in George's mind? Well, So, like, I mean, it has to be that to some degree, because, like, you know, in real life, if they were if he started talking to his wife about a tape that didn't exist, like, what the fuck are you talking about? This this is the problem. Like, it's like going into the mechanics of the postmodern or the sort of non-realistic interpretation isn't that fun either. But I'll give it a shot. It's like almost like a possible world of what would happen? How would I react if these 
if all of a sudden there were these tapes that were invading every aspect of my life, going in places they didn't belong in my life, and this is like my subconscious like exploration of that, and but it's very much realistic in that this is how it would go if these tapes existed. Like we, we read this article that I really loved and I think I'm probably influenced by in this interpretation. But one of the points she makes is this is like Bentham's panopticon. Jeremy Bentham had this idea of a prison and he wanted to make it as efficient as possible. And one of the ideas he dreamt of was this prison that's all glass and all the prisoners could be seen at all times by one, like one prison guard. And it's like that onto George's life. It's like all these things that he could keep concealed now can no longer be concealed. That's why everything is glass. And so we're getting a, an image of what that would be like. And I believe he really would, inter like he would interact with his wife in this way and his son and his boss. And the boss would, would act in that way too. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, it's just one step away, I think, from saying like, let me make a movie where this actually happens and this tortures this man, right? Like, I guess, yeah. So, so- I do think like the part that I agree with is like the that the director has clearly not wanted to wrap it up in a, you know, tie, you know, what you say, like tie a bow on it. Is that the, is that the thing? Yeah, not at all. Yeah. And so like almost made it like impossible to come up with any consistent interpretation. Yeah. Or satisfying, I guess. Yeah. yeah. I think like the most, so the most satisfying interpretation I think is Majid's son has something to do with it. Like that's the only one in world. Not, it's the only in world. It's not. It, the, yeah. in, in world yeah. is. So yeah. Just stay with me. Sure. Um, and, uh, but that he is in order to not make this just a psychological thriller and to make you think about all of these other things, I think he has to, uh, make it imper an imperfect, uh, plot so, because if you if audiences at the very end were like oh by the way it was him all along and they can stop thinking about it that way like you know like uh share in, in like uh that sharon stone uh, movie where she spreads her legs what's it but like, basic instinct basic instinct like the last scene is that the ice pick was you know like reveals who they're real like then you can just stop thinking about it but in this the last scene is the same static surveillance shot yeah. that you have in the present world, which is like this, you know, high quality, like surveillance, like looking yeah. at everything is what you're seeing from 40 years ago. Yeah. Exactly. And that can't happen. Like right. that, right. There's That's no not camera. a dream. You don't yeah. dream in a still. You don't dream in a still, right? Like there's clearly some camera. dream sequences yeah. where he's like, sees the little boy, uh, you know, with the blood coming out of his mouth or even the other one where he sees them like the chicken. He's like uh, beheading the rooster. And the although rooster that also around. starts, it's as also static. static, but then yeah. it turns into yeah. like, but, but like, he's like, you know what? It doesn't like, I've given you a psychological thriller and a mystery about these surveillance tapes that are being used to torture this man. But what's important is the, the knowledge that he has about the events in his own life and that he's being confronted with them. And, so like, I'm going to show you 40 years ago, a static surveillance tape of like the kid being, cause it's all about his guilt. It's all about like his guilt in, you know, as the microcosm and then the guilt of maybe perhaps the nation is a macrocosm, but it's within this story where I think like, I guess I'm saying, I don't yeah. think it's inconsistent. Like it's like the reason that he has a scene where the sons are talking to each other is because like the director, I think had something in mind. He's like, this work of art will be like that this family and these events. And like, I'm going to put in these clues 
But I want to make it so that you still are just thinking less about like the concrete explanation and more about the, that's what makes it a great work of art to me. Exactly. Like, and I think, you know, I've probably said this before, this quote that I love by David Lynch, where people are saying, you know, you like a lot of your movies don't have closure. And he just kind of like, it's like closure. Everyone's always talking about closure. (laughs) What the fuck? Like closure is just an excuse to make you forget you saw the damn thing. Right. (laughs) Like, and that's exactly what you were saying about like, if you just thought, oh, that was the, that was the real uh, killer all along or the real like taper all along, that would give you an excuse to forget the damn thing. And the whole point of this movie is don't forget your past. Like, don't forget what you just saw. Don't forget what you've experienced. Don't forget what you've done. Don't forget what your country has done. Don't don't run from your responsibility and your um, complicity in um, a, th- this kind of oppression. Sometimes, like just masquering people. Sometimes it's it's more invisible. Sometimes it's more subtle. Sometimes it's just having barriers of entry that people can't get through yeah. because of social norms. Face up to it. Reckon with it. There may not be a perfect solution to dealing with it, but you have to at least reckon with it. And then, you know, and that's George's sin is he never does. Yeah. He and refuses right. to. And it's not so much that like the, tr- like, the truth will come out because like somebody it's, it's not so much that it's that like the truth needs to come out. Like there is a pressure that's built up in the system where like, if it comes out in the form of a psychological thriller, then so be it. (laughs) Like that's, it's It's just like, let's make it come out. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, the thing you were saying about closure being like an excuse to not, not, uh, remember. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Is reminds me of this old effect in, in psychology called the Zigarnik effect where the original finding was that, if you gave people, I think they were crossword puzzles or, or math problems and uh, you didn't let them finish yeah. versus letting them finish, they were much more likely to remember the unfinished, like the clues from the unfinished thing. Like, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 I mean, that's just that line is perfect because it really does separate movies like i think we've talked about this like usual suspects you know yeah. when you find out that it was kaiser so say it's like okay cool yeah. that's cool but yeah, like yeah. it's who, like a like it's a, like a very different like thing it's yeah. like all right yeah cool like spoiler like you can't be sp- spoiled like there's In a, this movie. yeah because I mean, we don't know like, what's right. being spoiled <laughs> yeah exactly yeah exactly and and it's just so well like this idea i think couldn't couldn't be more relevant i think one thing we didn't mention is this is going on during the iraq war when uh and because uh and that's always out in the background they never actually wreck even though that it's on a tv or something like that they're describing it nobody ever acknowledges that it's that's right that's a good point no one's paying attention to the tv yeah as as but like the the words are clear it's not muffled in the background like the it's very the the news it's being shown is very clear. It's just the characters aren't paying attention to it. Exactly. And that's I wish they had, I wish they had had subtitles for the news thing too, but yeah. it's hard because they're talking. I think at it. one point they do, yeah, but yeah. most of the time they don't, yeah. it's just on and, and we know it, but now we're in this situation, maybe much like, like, uh, George and Anne where like, we know the Iraq war was, was just this horrifying, like just invasion of a country on false pretenses 
this thing that just led to hundreds of thousands of people losing their lives. We have veterans that are still like taking their own life all the time who served in Iraq or Afghanistan. And like we acknowledge it, but like it's a little too painful. Like that's recent uh, American past. When you start talking about slavery and you start talking about Native Americans and you start talking like this movie is about exactly you know, the kind of audience that would watch this movie a middle class, <laughs> like, you know, you know, obviously like you have to be some people who do a like, podcast about like artistic things. <laughs> exactly. Like yeah. we are George and Anne. <laughs> I'm George. I call it. Well, I don't know. No, I call Anne actually. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Pierre, man. I'm fucking your wife. I'm like fucking the wife. Um, although I have, I have better bags under my eyes. <laughs> yeah. I could be Pierre. Um, and what I like about this is, it's not, I mean, it's far from heavy handed, like yeah. in any way. In any but way. even if you conclude that this is what the director was trying to say, it's still not saying, oh, uh, you like evil people for having done things or you asshole or like we should do this in order to fix it or like who's right. in the wrong. It's just like. Reckon with it. Just exactly. Just don't forget it. Yeah. Right. Like I know that the Algerian massacre in on the sand was not like my fault, but like, are you really just never going to talk about it? Yeah. You know, like, are you really like the right. people who were affected by it still exist in this world? Like the, Bajid's son is directly feeling the effects of something that happened in whatever, 1961. But like, like I was saying, like, I've never heard of it. Like, you know, it's so, so, the frustration that you're not even gonna talk, like you're not even, you're gonna pretend that never even happened. Yeah. Let me walk into your office and like call you out, right? Majid Sun never says like, oh, this is about the Algerian massacre. It's an interpersonal like conflict, but it is clearly the result of like collective responsibility for not talking about anything. You know, which is paralleled by this kind of individual responsibility, but yeah. one that is, um, also unclear. It's like, let's it's say fuzzy. it's fuzzy. Oh, yeah, like, yeah. It, it does seem like probably Majid was a little bit, we get hints anyway, uh, possibly a little bit abusive, you know, as like a six year old will do. Plus, George was six. Like, all yeah. of a sudden, there's this new kid who might be like kind of also like fighting with him that's going to live in his room. Yeah. And so, even if he, he did some that shit, petty jealousy, like, yeah. he's like, you, uh, you was going to be in my room. <laughs> but, but I guess what I'm saying is like, you can say, oh, yes, in one sense, like, you can't be responsible for yeah, what you did yeah. when you were six. Like, six year old boys aren't like moral. They don't right. have, but. So his the problem is is that he refuses to just recognize that it happened and he refuses to say yes, okay, fine. There's a sense in which, you know, I'm not fully at fault because I was 6 years old and you know like this right. stuff was happening, but still I share just right. like us. Have he some can false say, positive. Have some false positive guilt. Exactly. You know? <laughs> like that's what he won't do. And yeah. like that's like us. Like we can say, look, my family wasn't here when slavery yeah. occurred. Like they weren't here. They weren't even close to being here uh when slavery occurred. So how is this my fault? You can say that and you and, and it's not that that claim won't have any merit. It's just the wrong like this is like yeah, this is yeah, like it all comes back analysis, to your study. It, right. It's not your causal like your unit yeah. analysis is not yeah. like the individual cause. Obviously, like yeah. it's so it's obvious. Like right. it's just that you know, we can't just say like all right, like we've moved on. Like let's just stop. Like let's just right. like no. Like it, 
We yeah. have to like, and I don't know what when I think this movie doesn't give any answers. No, that, that's what, why I like what it. you're supposed yeah. to yeah. do about it. Yeah. But one thing is, you at least have to face it and right. acknowledge it. And but yes, this is what's hard about it. Yeah. It's like okay, but then what? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Well. You can always have an affair with sexy Pierre, the Frenchman. <laughs> <laughs> Frenchman who's uh, probably like like 38, but looks like he's like 65. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You know, the one thing that I can agree with is uh, I remember teaching, you know, we've talked about this plenty of times on the podcast when you teach uh, Peter Singer and um, you come to bring this sort of like guilt on the heads of your students and yeah. uh the students say well like how do you deal with it and i've said this on the podcast back in the day before too like my answer would always be just like i would deal with anything i would like pop a couple of painkillers and have a drink yeah <laughs> that's exactly george's way of dealing with everything that went on he took two sleeping pills shut the blinds and went to sleep and i gotta say i deeply can relate <laughs> Yeah. 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 I, I, on the other hand, reckon with all the, the bad things that I am a part of, that I am complicit in. And you're actually like in the 12 step program, you're at the step where you're just going around to people who you yeah. might like. You, yeah. You know. it's, it's taking a while. <laughs> Sorry, like little kids in China who made my <laughs> made iPhone. My... <laughs> uh, <laughs> That's something I don't want to think about. <laughs> Uh, just know that you're like the 15 hour days that you worked like didn't go to waste because look at this picture i got of montana <laughs> worth it <laughs> all right uh, all right well, this has probably been a scary long time two hours i'm looking at the timer right now oh, motherfucker. <laughs> all right join us next time on very bad wizards Just a very bad wizard.